We are in the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel today. I hope that you will find that in the Bible you brought with you, uh, in the Pew Bible, uh, on your device. We're going to do some work, and it's going to require us to do a little bit of of hard work today, maybe some more uh, work than we typically do, because it's a difficult, difficult uh, parable that the lectionary has given us. I was just thinking that uh, these Bibles that the third graders have are wrapped in gold paper. Um, They're wrapped in a paper bag, a comet strip, and regular white paper. But I tell you what, they might wrap this one in sandpaper (laughs) the way this parable unfolds. So let's think about that. I invite you, as you're able to stand for the reading and the hearing of God's holy word today. From Luke chapter 16, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen for the word of the Lord. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking my position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first one, how much do you owe my master? And he said, 100 jugs of olive oil. The manager said, well, take your bill, sit down quietly, and just make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, 100 containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down, and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, They may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Believe it or not, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. At the 1968 Olympic Games held in Mexico, a Tanzanian runner entered the marathon just like all of the other runners only he finished by himself, alone. When he finally arrived back at the stadium, there were only a few spectators remaining in the stands. The winner had crossed the finish line over an hour earlier. It was getting dark, and this Tanzanian runner's leg was bandaged and heavily bleeding. He was in great pain. He was suffering from leg cramps, fatigue, dehydration, and disorientation. And a reporter put a microphone in front of him and said, why didn't you just quit a long time ago? 
And the marathon runner said, my country, my country did not send me here to start the race. My country sent me here to finish it. My country didn't send me to start it, but to finish it. We, we throw out a, a similar adage, it's not how you start in life, but how you finish in life, and that's a very bold business proposition. And so what if this complicated parable that infuriates most people who read it, maybe especially those in the West, what if this parable is a message from God that it's not up to us to start the race, the race has already been started, we're in it by virtue of baptism as we see, but what's more important is how we finish it, and with whom, and with what degree of integrity. Will we do whatever it takes to remain in good graces with the Master? Will we allow our journey to lead us to the cross? Will we take up our cross daily, as we read in Luke's gospel earlier? And will we allow it to take us to a Calvary moment? That is, that is what it means to follow the ways of Jesus, to deny it all. But in this case, to be shrewd, creative, innovative in the way that we do that. One of the challenges with finishing strongly is that with the slightest amount of resistance or tension or angst or when we bump into to something that you know, just isn't like it needs to be. It's so easy to walk away and to withhold and to wobble from, from worry. I hadn't thought about this manager in this way until reading this text this week, but this manager is in a really anxious, tense, stressful situation. He's about to lose his job. What will he do? He's, he's too old to dig. He doesn't want to beg. What does he do? Where does he turn? So I wonder about this odd manager, and I wonder what we do amid the tension and the stress to think creatively about the kingdom of God and how to serve it and to do whatever it takes to continue the mission and the movement forward in the ways of Jesus. So I just want to kind of back into this parable a little bit by starting at the end. Jason mentioned some of that. No one can serve two masters. We can't serve money and we can't serve God at the same time. We, we place uh, an idol up. We all do that. You know, I love Bob Dylan. He said, we've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but we're going to serve somebody or something. I would venture that we serve more than one master or two masters alternatively to God that we give, we give deference to money, power, control, but also to scheduling. We overschedule ourselves. We, we try to keep up with those down the streets. We, we serve the masters of social expectations and the ruthless pursuit of more and more and more. We all do it. And we're either going to hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the others. We will serve something. So we think about that teaching as the backstop or the backdrop of this dualistic lesson that Jesus is, is giving us for this terribly complicated parable about a dishonest manager. I know a lot of you have studied this parable before. 
And some of you have texted me this past week asking questions like, what in the world are you going to do with this parable this week, Jay? One of you said that you're sitting at home watching, I think, at this service, and you were going to pop some popcorn and just see where we went with it today. <laughs> Save some for me, right? Uh, the truth is, there is good news, even in difficult sandpaper-wrapped parables. We just need to kick around a few stones and scratch the topsoil. One of the questions that was asked and is often asked in Bible studies about this text is, is Jesus commending dishonesty? Is Jesus saying to imitate it? Surely not. Like, surely that's not what we want our third graders to read when they get to Luke 16 in their adventure Bibles. Go dishonesty. That's not what, that's not what is being rewarded here. I did hear a story once about a man who came home intoxicated and he didn't want to fuss with his wife, so he snuck in the house conspicuously. He went up the stairs quietly. He looked in the bathroom mirror and bandaged the bumps and the bruises he'd received in a fight earlier that night. And he proceeded to climb into bed and he was smiling because he realized he had pulled a fast one over on his wife. She never knew he was there until the next morning when she was standing over him his eyes opened, and she said, You were drinking last night, weren't you, honey? No, honey, I was not. Well, if you weren't, then who put all the Band-Aids on the bathroom mirror? <laughs> now, no one would be comfortable hearing, be like the dishonest, intoxicated guy. Stay out too late, sneak around, but because of your craftiness and the way that you pulled it off, almost, you'll be commended. I don't believe Jesus is rewarding dishonesty. So what's the deal? What's the deal here? It's a hard parable. Make no bones about it. The lection has given us a tough one. So I want to spend just a minute thinking about what's on either side of it. And if you have your Bibles open, you'll, you'll see this. Luke 15 ends with the parable of the prodigal son. Next week, we're going to talk about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And there's some clues that I think in all three of these that are helpful for determining what Luke is trying to paint for us. It says, the prodigal son squandered his inheritance. The manager in our story squandered what wasn't his. Same word. There was a rich man who had a manager. There was a rich man who feasted sumptuously. That's next week. Luke is bleeding some colors together, sort of like a, a Monet water lily moment. But I think what, what's going on here is something even bigger and more important because with God's kingdom, there's a reverse order to things, even when there's accounting errors, especially when it comes to accounting. The son was lost. And no sooner was he found than his brother, through his jealousy, who was found, became lost. The rich man in this life ended up in Hades, while the poor man ended up in heaven with Abraham. And between those two stories is our, our story today about uh, reversal of expectation. The dishonest manager is praised for his shrewdness, his wisdom, his, his prudence. I think for placing relationships above money. That's what I think is, is happening here. In all three stories, the prodigal son, the dishonest manager, the rich man and Lazarus, we don't know how those stories end, or at least how people who are hearing those stories would have responded to those stories. 
Because it's not about how we start, it's about how we finish. And all of these parables are pointing to a day that's here in part. We get a glimpse of it, but not in full. All three point to the coming reign of God's kingdom where prodigals are welcomed home, shrewd planning for the future is rewarded, and where expectations of power will be inverted. And so the wide-angle view is pointing to an ending that will be determined by what we choose to do with our relationships, our possessions, and our neighbors right now. There you go. So what about this manager? What about this middle management level who squandered his boss's property right under his boss's nose. He hid it from him. He didn't have much care for his boss or for his, his colleagues or fear of getting caught. This was all about what this one manager could get away with, and the boss heard about it. And I don't know, you get caught stealing red-handed at a job, and like immediately, psh, that's it, right? You're fired in most businesses. And as if stealing from someone isn't enough, he comes up with this idea. I'm not just going to stop there. I, you know, I'm going to cut debt by 50% and by 20% for even more self-gain to work on those. This is a political move. <laughs> This is alliances, sly insider trading even, where with these customers, this manager, he doesn't have any options left. He has to find a way to secure the future, to make sure that things keep moving forward. There are no glowing resumes or references for this guy. He's got to do what he's got to do. And so with all of that in mind, the hearers are on the edge of their seats too now. They're, they're popping the popcorn as fast as they can. And then we get to this verse and says, the master commended the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. The master didn't scold him, didn't fire him. He commended him. And I just imagine the disciples at that moment are like, huh? Say what, Jesus? He gets praise for this? Yes because what we expect is turned on its head. I think Jesus would have said, look, guys, the kid has street smarts. You got to give it to him. He figured out a crafty way to make it happen. The people who owed the master a debt had reduced it, and at least the master received some payment. It's better than no payment at all. There's some wisdom in that for which this middle manager was commended. We don't know what happened at the end of the story. You can plug that in yourself this week as you're studying it. But then Jesus says something really odd. He says, as he's adding his own commentary to this story, the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of the light. The children of this world versus the children of the light. There's a dualism again. The children of this age, the children. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it's gone, you may come into eternal homes. Whoever's faithful with a little, you know how it goes. It's such a strange parable, friends. But I think this is what Jesus could be saying. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. We know that the love of money is the root of, of all evil, not money itself. Jesus could be saying 
to use our money shrewdly, creatively, and with some street smarts to advance the kingdom of God on earth. While we have it, let's use it, but let's use it for God's purposes to the same degree that the world uses money for prideful purposes. Now, there's a great commentary on this that I've discovered. It says, Jesus draws a line between the children of this age, the children of light, and he says, unbelievers are wiser in things of this world than believers are about things in the world to come. Think about that a minute. The unjust steward demonstrated worldly wisdom through dishonest cunning and rascality by cheating his master. He made friends with the master's debtors. Just goes on and on and on. So this middle manager puts relationships above money, relationships above conflict, relationships above all else to keep moving down the field this manager knew better how to deal with a worldly-minded master who was above him and the dishonest tenants beneath him than a person of light knows how to deal with a God who's over us and needy neighbors who are all around us. Sandpaper kind of wrapping. I think Jesus and Luke are... They had in mind the Acts 4 community that's coming a little bit later, post-resurrection and ascension. It's not exactly clear, but I think they had this new community in mind that was coming where all things would be held together and in common. And some people in the church were able to make those adjustments. Others decided that their money belonged to them and not even the church was, was worthy of receiving it. They'd worked too hard for it. They didn't agree with everything. But it all belongs to God, and we don't get to take it with us. And there's a greater mission at stake if we don't act shrewdly and wisely, creatively, with that which belongs to God. Losing one's perspective about eternal ways of God at work in the world through the church can be costly to the mission of Jesus Christ. How we finish will be determined by what we do in this moment right now because at some point along our journey together and we are on a journey together somewhere it will become too easy to serve self-interest to serve money to serve power Jesus tells us that somewhere along the way the mission will take a back seat to position somewhere along the way we will decide that winner takes all instead of I surrender all as a starting place Somewhere along the way, we will stop hearing the community's voice and it'll become more about our choice and our voice. Somewhere along the way, we will turn God's vision into a division and we'll huddle in corners with our groups and forget that we belong at the table together and in the race together and in the boat together and that we belong to a mission that's much bigger than any one of us because we are the children of light and we are not supposed to forget how the story ends. These students, sometimes it's tempting to go straight to the back of the book, but if you go straight to the back of the book, you get it. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And because I live, you don't have anything to fear. You have life and mission and purpose and so this parable begins to summon us to the master, think about this, who wants an accounting of what we've been doing. That day's coming. That day is coming. 
but it's also a summons into the relationships as we serve people who are overwhelmed by the yoke of debt and guilt and shame and apathy and, and wayward. You and I are the middle management. We're called the church, but we're middle management. What are we going to do with that which God has entrusted to us? I think Jesus is saying, I'm ready to unleash the church to go rogue, to become prodigal, to run into the streets and lavishly give away forgiveness and grace and mercy and hope and membership and Wednesday night supper meal tickets to anybody who wants one because people are longing, waiting for the burden of doubt, loneliness, shame to be taken off. Do what it takes to keep moving forward. That's what the manager did. My guess is that's how most of us started. Somebody came along and said, breathe. There's someone here to take that burden from you. Breathe, cut it by more than 50 or 20%, cut it by 100%. Reminds me of a story in 2004, I'll finish with this. Uh, it, it was a YouTube video that went insanely viral. It's, it's hit about, I don't know, 80 or 100 million uh, pings at this point. And it's the story of an Australian man named Juan Mann, M-A-N-N, uh, and his backstory is that he showed up at a, at a party severely depressed and all alone. He came to the party by himself, and he spent time there. And it was awkward because the whole thing was happening and, and going on, and no one was really talking to him. But at some point during the night, a total stranger walked over to him and said, Are you okay? You look like you could use a hug. <laughs> May I give you a hug? Strange thing, right? Juan said, sure. And he said he received that hug and it changed his life because he felt like someone finally saw him. He felt like a king. And so Juan took that, that moment and acted shrewdly, creatively, innovatively, and he created a sign that he took down to his local mall, a food court or something, and the sign had only eight letters, two words. He held it up. It said, free hugs. Do you know about the free hugs movement? Have you heard about that? It started with Juan because somebody came and said, I know you've got this weight. I know you have this debt. I know you have this, this burden that's on you. Just something as, as simple. And now in over 17 countries, the free hug movement has started because someone was shrewd enough to say, that might move the kingdom of God forward. Maybe we need to do free fist bumps or something. I don't know. It's a little uncomfortable, right? But I just wonder when the master comes and asks for an accounting, if we're going to be able to offer the kingdom values, here's what we've been doing, and here's how. When the day of accounting comes, will we be found faithful with the master's property and the master's people? When the day of accounting comes, will we be creative and wise and shrewd with our talents and, and with our money by delivering, delivering others from their heavy burden? The master did not send us here to begin the race, but to finish the race by partnering to reconcile, to redeem, to restore, and to raise to new life the possibilities that our best days are ahead of us. I figure it might as well begin right here, right now. Let it be so. Amen.